Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. September 29th, 1913. The steamship Dresden is halfway between Belgium and England. On board is one of the most famous men in the world, Rudolf Diesel, whose new internal combustion engine is on the verge of revolutionizing global industry forever. But Diesel never arrives at his destination. He vanishes during the night, and headlines around the world wonder if it was an accident, suicide, or murder. Author Doug Brunt takes us on a journey into the life of this modern-day Tesla. We talk about his latest book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolf Diesel. In this wide-ranging discussion, we get into the world of writing, the entrepreneurism of being an author, the differences between fiction and nonfiction, and his dedicated podcast with the leading lights in the publishing world. It's a great listen for budding authors, readers, and entrepreneurs. Welcome aboard, Doug. Fraser, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, it's a lot of fun for me. Obviously, we go way back, and I've actually read two of your other books, and to have you come across the diesel story with your new foray, it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. I'm thrilled to have you on. Let's start a little bit about, for our listeners here who don't know the Doug Brunt story, a little bit about your background. And I think it's important to talk a little bit about how you went from being an entrepreneur to a writer. And then we'll talk a little bit about the conversion from fiction to nonfiction. Great. Yeah, I used to be in the business world and much more along lines of what you're doing. And Loved it. I think there's a lot of overlap between entrepreneurship in the business world and writing a book. And as you come in as an entrepreneur running a small company, you're sort of defining what the next chapter of the business is going to be each day. So while there are many common points, there are a lot of things that are very different too. I'm pretty good at managing people, but it's not my favorite thing to do. But I also have over the years discovered that I do miss engaging with people and having a team. And we'll get to that later when we talk about the podcast, maybe. But I was back in 2010, 11, working a lot, traveling a lot for work, but have always loved reading, writing, and started tinkering around with the idea for a novel in 2011. And I remember I was walking with my wife in Central Park one afternoon. We just had a kid. And we're strolling the baby. And she's like, honey, you seem stressed and anxious and kind of overwrought. And it was a very dysfunctional time in the company. There was a lot of board infighting and I was traveling a lot. I'm like, you know what? I am. And she's like, what about the writing thing? And I had just at this time finished a first draft of a novel and I had given it to her to read, which is a very awkward potentially situation in a marriage when someone's like, hey, check out my book. And if it's really garbage, she's like, what do you say as a spouse? <laughs> there were a few pages sort of redlined and crossed out, like boring or bad or whatever. But overall, she's like, this is really good. And so did take that out to find an agent that I was lucky to find in the first few times reaching out to agents and found someone who said, with some work, this could really be good. You've got the voice, right? Which is one of the hardest things to capture in a novel is the voice of your character. You know, someone that any reader would want to spend 300 pages with and ultimately sold the company and found a publisher. My first book came out with Simon and & Schuster and first novel did well and then never looked back. I've been writing ever since. So one of the cool things when your book came out and I was fast to read it, and then you came out with another one somewhat shortly after that. And it, the first one was built around the finance world. And the second one was built more around the political world. I was really impressed 
with not just sort of the blocking and tackling of plot structure and so on, but I was very interested in the arcs of the characters. You've gone on now to write a new book, which is much more nonfiction based. Maybe talk a little bit about the process in writing a fiction book versus a nonfiction book, because I'm sure there's a lot of similarities, a lot of research, but it's a little different. My guess is when you're conjuring up in creating different worlds and maybe in the nonfiction world, you're discovering and reporting on. One of the things, as you hinted, that was similar was the amount of research. And for all my novels, one of the things that I really focused on was getting into that world. So as you said, the first one was in finance and it followed a Bear Stearns bond salesman in that 07, 08 mortgage-backed crisis. The second book was the intersection between politics and media. And I did tons of interviews. It was mainly primary research, going to find people who ran presidential campaigns or were Congress people or journalists covering politics. And that amount of research, it really does help inform the novel and bring this sort of credibility onto the page. So I've always done a ton of research for my books. The third book, Trophy Son, was about a tennis prodigy. And I interviewed James Blake and John Isner and some of the great American tennis players, as well as folks who made that same commitment, went to Boletary, didn't even mainstream school, but pulled out of schools and did nothing but tennis, but then never cracked the top 500. And now they run a rackets program at a club or something like that. And those interviews were just as valuable as James Blake and informed the book and really brings sort of a real world. As a reader, I think you can feel it. I'm reading almost something nonfiction-like, but it's all wrapped in a fictional story and the force of the message can come through that way. This new book, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel, I didn't even know the diesel engine was invented by some guy named Diesel. I didn't realize it was a proper noun. You often see diesel misspelled with a lowercase d when you read newspaper articles or you see it written somewhere. But it should be an uppercase D. It's Rudolph Diesel who invented it. And I came across it because about seven years ago, I bought a boat and I was going to redo the boat and had these gasoline engines on there. And I was talking to the guy in the boatyard. I'm like, what should I do to fix this boat up? And he said, well, the first thing you should do is repower it to diesel. And I didn't know. I'm like, well, what's different about diesel and gasoline? I didn't know any of these things. And he went on with a few points. First, the fuel efficiency is two or three X. So if you have a 200 gallon fuel tank, you'll go three times as far with diesel. You'll have a much bigger range. 100% of boat fires come from gasoline engines, none from diesel. The fuel is not flammable in normal conditions. There are no fumes. It's not a fumey fuel because it's very inert. It's like a heavier oil as opposed to gasoline, which is very fumey. It doesn't start from a spark. It starts from a pressure within the engine. So I had all these points. I'm like, well, that's fascinating. And then I was working on ideas for a new novel. I was in between books and I was just Googling around and I came across this list of mysterious disappearances at sea. And on the list was Rudolph Diesel. And I thought, I wonder if this is some connection to the engine. And of course it was. And it talked about this crazy disappearance of Rudolph Diesel right on the eve of World War I at a time when he and his engine were critical to the geopolitical climate of nationalism, militarism, the changing merchant fleets of the world, as well as this uncertainty about which path we were going to go down with regard to fuel. Gasoline wasn't a big thing. We were still transitioning from kerosene for illumination when gasoline was a wasted byproduct that people used to throw away. It wasn't a foregone conclusion that Rockefeller and Standard Oil were going to be providing fuel for combustion engines at that time. So I went down a four-year rabbit hole and wrote a nonfiction book. One of the things that I was impressed with was, aside from getting the engineering right, given a background into how things work without necessarily 
getting too far into the weeds on it. And obviously your boat experience, you're sort of learning on the fly as to how these things work and so on. How did you balance that out when you were writing the book to make sure you didn't get too wonky on that front? But at the same time, really talk about how magnificent the discovery slash invention was that Rudolph made. You're right. One of the biggest challenges of the book was organizing all the pieces. Because on the one hand, it's a biography of Rudolph Diesel, but it's also this crazy spy caper true crime mystery. It's also a bit of a primer on turn of the century diplomacy and a bit of like a combustion engines for dummies. And all of it makes sense. The structure really came about because when Diesel disappeared in September of 1913, he was on an overnight passenger ferry going from Belgium to Great Britain on one of these old steamers crossing the North Sea. And he disappears in the night. And at this time, although his name has really been erased from history, and as you discover the reasons why, deliberately erased. But at the time, 1913, he was a huge global celebrity on the level of Edison and Tesla. And so newspaper headlines around the world were going bonkers over the disappearance of Rudolf Diesel and what happened in the night. And two murder suspects emerged. Now, the prevailing theory was probably suicide, that he had jumped off a ship in the middle of the North Sea. But there were also two other theories. One was that he was murdered by agents dispatched by Kaiser Wilhelm II, the emperor of Germany. The other was that he was murdered by thugs, you know, maybe Pinkerton detective types that were dispatched by John Rockefeller and the oil trusts. And so that is a structure I went with because when you explain the motives why these two incredibly powerful men would want to kill Diesel, like why was Rudolf Diesel such a threat to them that they would murder him? And why would headlines like in the New York Times be talking about them as potentially the murder suspects of Rudolf Diesel? Like, who was this guy? So when you explore the background and come at it from talking about Kaiser Wilhelm and who he was and what was going on with him in the world at that time, Rockefeller and Diesel, and why these three people merge, you come to understand how much of a game changer diesel technology was at that time. I think it was a really smart choice to interweave the Rockefeller and the Wilhelm components of it, because the invention itself, as magnificent as it is, taken in a vacuum, doesn't really show the threat that it caused to the geopolitical world over in Europe, and then in a sense, the economic world that Rockefeller was developing at the time. I thought that was particularly interesting. And gosh, I mean, the weaving, the diesel for dummies, true crime, and the political aspects of it, I think it speaks kind of a cool story going forward. So talk a little bit about the research a little bit. How do you, aside from tooling around the internet and so on, did you have to go over to Europe and look at primary sources? Or how did you go about that so that you really got in behind the man? Because especially early in the book, you really get into a lot of the letters that he wrote and so on. What form did that take? Well, interestingly, a lot of the research happened during COVID, which was a challenge. A lot of these archives. So I did get not physically into many of these archives, but I made relationships with the archivists at, for example, the Mann Museum, the Mann Archive, the Maschinenfabrik Augsburg-Nuremberg, which is one of the remained, was the original diesel engine manufacturer where Rudolph had partnered going back to 1897 and remains one of the great diesel engine manufacturers today. The Deutsches Museum, there are archives in Denmark and Great Britain and America. The founding diesel partner in North America, the business tycoon who took the exclusive right to market and manufacture diesel engines in America was Adolphus Busch, the founder of Anheuser-Busch. 
who initially was using the diesel engine to pump water for his breweries and provide energy for refrigeration, but he ultimately ended up building diesel engines for submarines for the U.S. Navy. So the research took a few different forms. There's such a, a lack of information about diesel in the English language in particular, which was part of the reason why I wrote the book. It's, this is crazy why we don't know more about this guy. And then I got a lot of information, for example, his diaries and letters written in German. I called up my high school, a buddy who was working in the English department there. I said, who speaks German over there at, at the school? And so he put me in touch with a German professor who translated all this incredible stuff for me. And some of the most fascinating parts of the book are Diesel's personal diary entries from his visits to America in 1904 and 1912. And he meets Thomas Edison and has this meeting that was just, his notes on it are just hilarious. And his observations of America at that time are really astute and also somewhat hilarious. So the research was a lot of fun. And it's almost like the geeky side of Indiana Jones, because you find like a little nugget. And without the context of what's happening with the diesel engine at that time, the world is in a massive arms race where the militarism in Western Europe is out of control. And in particular, there's a naval arms race between Great Britain and Germany. And they're at each other's throats. And suddenly the diesel engine emerges as a critical piece of technology for the naval arms race. You cannot have submarines without the diesel engine. And so now every Navy of the major powers is scrambling for diesel power. And diesel, the engine is still very young. Rudolf Diesel in particular is still the main genius behind building a diesel engine for the exacting requirements of undersea travel. And so there's this whole crazy thing. You'd uncover something with Churchill or with Kaiser Wilhelm or Tirpitz, the Grand Admiral in Germany, or Jackie Fisher, the head of the Navy for Great Britain. And without the context of understanding, you're like, oh, this is just an interesting little fact. But when you know the whole story, like this is gold, this means everything. So in the research, when you come across a letter or something in a diary that knowing the whole story is just massive. And as you know, having read it, you come across these little notes or a comment by Fisher or something like that, and it means so much. So the research was so fun. I mean, I really, I missed working on that kind of thing, but finding those things was just so fun. The structure component of it, we talked about the choices you made on that. Did you come across any situations where you had the blueprint for the book sort of established, and then you start going off in a direction and the research forced you to go back and adjust things accordingly? Or how you build it and the choices you made early work out well, ultimately, as you went through the arc of the book writing process. The overall structure of diesel and then sort of the, call it like a mini bio on bringing up these suspects, Kaiser Wilhelm and Rockefeller, that always held, that worked. There was lots of touch-up research that I would do when you're evoking a period. Diesel, he was born in Paris. His parents emigrated from Germany to Paris. And then he was born in Paris in 1858. Then he would go to the World's Fair or something like that in 1867 in Paris. This was the era when progress was suddenly happening so rapidly that they started to celebrate the rapid change through these World's Fair. And so when he went there, I'd come back and do some touch-up research. Like, what else was at that World's Fair? You know, the Steinway piano made a huge splash at the 1867 World's Fair. Suddenly, pianos are everywhere. And the Krupp metalworking company in Germany had made this 60-ton cannon. And so... I would do a little bit of touch-up research. If he's crossing the London Bridge, what kind of lighting do they have on the bridge? Was it gas or whatever? Just so I could get little details right for, call them scenes. It's nonfiction, so it's not like I'm creating a novelistic scene, but one of the things that's 
good about narrative nonfiction, the way David Grand does it or the way Eric Larson does it, is the details are right. And so it's the narrative nonfiction. So it's a true story, but it can be told in a novelistic way. And you want to get that reader excited to be turning the pages. So there was touch-up research to try and get that stuff. Well, one of the great things, too, is having written three pretty successful fiction books, you knew how to drive a story, and it doesn't become some sort of academic exercise that bores the reader halfway through. I thought that was well done. I've tried to explain to people, I've written one book and try to do other writing and so on, so I'm probably not exactly the right person to opine on it. But the idea that writing, it's a bit like baseball in the Al Capone Untouchables movie monologue where... It's a very lonely endeavor. You have to get from A to Z and write it and do it. And so that involves research, that involves writing, that involves sitting in a room and executing. So that's like being the individual batter and having to execute on that. But there's a real team sport component to it, too, where you're receiving notes. You've got an agent, an editor. In my case, I had a couple of people that I really relied on to get my thing from A to Z and get confidence really that what I was doing was okay, kind of what you were talking about at the beginning. How does that work in your case? You're established, you're making a move into the nonfiction world. You have an agent that kind of knows where things are going and what will work and what won't. How do you receive notes? How did you build sort of that input output system so that you were getting the feedback to know you were going in the right direction? My first, if you call it like a beta test reader, an early reader is my wife. She reads everything early on. I try to get things in a fairly complete form before I show it to anyone, but she's usually the first reader. In this case, I actually got a new agent who was much more focused on nonfiction. And the way you sell these things, the way you sell a novel in fiction is generally you write the novel and then you sell the novel and it's 95 or more percent of the way done. And then someone loves the novel, they buy the novel. And then you might tweak it a bit and do a revision. But you generally sell a finished product. On nonfiction, it's not that way at all. You sell a proposal. You don't sell a finished work at all. You sell a proposal for what could be. And I had never done that before. And so I had an agent who took me through the steps because it's a kind of a template for what goes into the proposal. You need typically a sample chapter, but a fairly detailed chapter outline of what the whole book will be. You list your research and the additional research that you're going to do. You list competitive works that already exist in market. You know, in the case of diesel, there's just almost nothing. Like no one's written about this guy since the 80s and everybody's got so much of it wrong. You give sort of a cast of characters, you know, who's in the book and things like that. So there's a set thing that everyone's expecting to see in a nonfiction book proposal, which I had not done. And so my agent really took me through that. And in that process, my agent became very familiar with the story as well. And so we worked on some structure there. I think it was my idea to have these three characters be a piece of it. But we tweaked some things, you know, the emphasis, because you really want to stay on the diesel thrust of the story. And then I was lucky to get a very talented editor at Simon & Schuster, Peter Borland, who's terrific. His main contribution was structure. How much do we skip around? Should we do really short chapters and zip all around or sort of stay with it a little bit longer and... You know, we did a lot of structural work on the book, and he was really terrific. So those were the three people, my wife, my agent, my editor. Well, that's fascinating. And just sort of an interesting idea on how that all works, because I can imagine if the committee's too big, then you get overwhelmed with ideas and you never make it too far. But if you've got a few people that you trust on it, then it helps drive the process. Yeah. You know, one other weird thing to note that I'll tell you, and this is unique to me and maybe some others, but... Everyone has a different process. I talk to tons of different writers on my podcast. I have many friends who are writers. 
And it was either Lee Child or Harlan Coben was saying, you ask 20 writers how they do it, and you'll hear 30 answers. But for me, with my fiction, I usually do it by hand. I write on a yellow legal pad, and I can do it anywhere. I can do it on a train or in a cafe. I don't mind noise. I usually write an outline, but then I write it out by hand, and then I'll type it in. And that typing step, that's sort of like an editing step for me, so it's not just wasted time transcribing. On the fiction side, though, I don't do it by hand. I was on my laptop, and I need to be at my desk. I have stacks of material around me, either notes of interviews and things like that, or tons of books. With a fiction, I don't really want to be online. With a nonfiction, I have to be online because I'm constantly looking up a little fact or a date or something. And I type in the first draft, and nothing's written out by hand. And I'm trying to track all the research. The only thing that might be by hand was my stacks of index cards making notes of where my material was coming from. Then, by the way, if anyone's doing nonfiction, make sure you are really diligent in tracking your sources. Because when you go back at the end of the book and you have to fill out your notes section and get all your, you know, on page 22, this fact came from wherever. Like, that is a nightmare if you haven't really been keeping good track of that. Did you find that easier or more difficult or just different compared to the fiction process? Keeping track of everything was very difficult, but I spent a lot of time. I kind of knew, I anticipated what a headache that was going to be at the end, so I tried to do my best with it. And now I've learned a few tricks where I could do it even better the next time, because I did have a few moments of pulling hair out, like, where the hell did that fact, I you know, kind of lost my reference. I had to go back, you know, and you're in some 500-page book where you know you got something on Winston Churchill from 1911, like, my God, I got to find this thing, you know, where... Or else, you know, you can't use it. You got to take it out if you can't source it. So there are a few things that took about eight hours that should have taken two minutes tracking down where I got some stuff. But overall, I loved the research. Like, as I say, it wasn't the Indiana Jones with the whip. It was the Indiana Jones in the classroom. But it still had that fun, adventurous energy to be putting together this mystery from 100 years ago and solving it. Like, it really was a fun thing. So one of the cool things that you do is your podcast focuses on other authors and their processes and what they do and so on. It's obviously fun to do. And it's something that you enjoy talking to the people you interview because that comes through immediately. What do you take away from that? What do you learn from hearing the other authors and how they do things? And what have you done to incorporate what they do into your process and, and how you think about things? I would say it's just more of a general inspiration to me to keep at it. I love that the life of it. And, you know, it really is such a joy to be able to do, to be able to do that for a living. I would say process-wise, I haven't really picked up too many tricks. So there's occasional advice. Joe Nesbo saying, it's okay to write a bad sentence or a bad paragraph, even a bad book. Like, forgive yourself that. That will happen. And don't worry about throwing it away and just keep going. Joe Nesbo had already been a number one New York Times bestselling author of many books. He'd been at it 20 plus years. And then he wrote a book. He's like, yeah, you know, this is kind of garbage. And he just, his editor was like, yeah, I don't really love this one. And it was fine. You know, he just tossed it aside, went on and then wrote another great one. So kind of forgive yourself things that may not be up to the standards that you aspire to or have already even achieved. So there are probably little pieces of advice like that that come along. But for the most part, it satisfies that other side of me that used to enjoy the business world because as you say, it's solitary and you really do need to, if you're going to be a writer, you need to be the kind of person who embraces some alone time. You can't squirm away from that. You got to actually want to run to it, at least for a large percentage of your day. And for me, I do. I really love it. But I, 
I also, you know, I don't want that 100% of the time. I like working with a team and having some interaction like that. And the podcast allows me to do that. I have a team of producers. Some of the people who come on the show are old friends and some are writers I've never met before. So it's a fun social piece to put into my, my life. One of the things I really like about it is that I get from it that even the geniuses struggle at times and it's hard. And while we all have our different ambitions on things, even the people who've made it and who end up getting to where they want to go, they're looking around going, what is my next act? And how am I going to execute it? And it's not obvious. And I take solace, I guess, from that. But also, it's just very interesting to sort of hear how, not just their process, but just how their motivations really come through when you interview. Mm-hmm. I think everyone starting out the new one has a little moment of like, part of them's like, this time I'm really going to show them. But it's like, well, how's it, how am I going to get into it again, too? And I remember talking to Lee Child, and he was saying, people ask me all the time, like, how do you do it? Like, how do you write a novel? And he says, I don't know what to tell him. He's like, I only know how to write the novel I'm writing right now. But I, I couldn't otherwise tell you how to do it or a way that works. Just sort of, but there's no substitute for getting down and putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard or whatever. You just have to start writing. Okay, the mystery solves and dissolves as you get into it a bit. Yeah, you're nothing if you don't at least have a first draft. If you can't get to that point, it's all speculative, I think. So this is so much fun. I am thrilled. So I got to read the book, which I thought was terrific. I'm going to encourage everyone to go out and buy a copy. And if they don't like it, buy three copies. And show you, Doug that there's another way. But how do we find the book? When does it come out? Let's get those details out. Publication date, September 19. Anywhere you get books. It's already the pre-sales here are doing very well on Amazon and other places. Reviews have been good. It's a starred review from Publishers Weekly. Calls it a thrilling investigation. So reviews have been terrific on the book. And yeah, The Mysterious Case of Rudolph Diesel, nonfiction. Some of the people who've reviewed it are saying, you're reading this book and you kind of forget that it's all true. It's reading like a crazy thriller. And you're like, oh my gosh, another bizarre twist and crazy piece of information. And you're like, wait a minute, this actually happened. This is all true. Is there a chance you can turn it into a movie or a separate podcast or something like that? That would all be great. There are conversations happening now with producers for book to film. I don't know. And everyone's saying, oh, it's a lot like Oppenheimer in that way. Oppenheimer was based on a book called The American Prometheus. And there are people in speeches in America and in Europe who are referring to diesel as the new Prometheus. They're both dealing with energy and fire. And there are lots of parallels to Oppenheimer. So that has actually initiated a lot of book-to-film discussions as well, just because Oppenheimer has done so well in the box office. But I don't know if diesel will be treated as a limited series or as a feature film or as a documentary or, you know, how that would all shape up. And then your podcast, how do listeners find it? How do we get it out there in the open for everyone? Also available anywhere. It's not behind any kind of paywall. I do it in partnership with Sirius XM, but you can get it on Apple, Spotify, Sirius XM app, wherever you get podcasts, it's out there. It's called Dedicated with Doug Brunt. I start each episode with my guest's favorite cocktail. So for example, Lee Child was champagne. Amor Tolls was a Negroni. Douglas Murray was a Manhattan. Jennifer Egan had a cocktail that a friend of hers invented called the Gold Rush, which is like bourbon and lemon juice. And that was delicious. So we start off with a drink. I make the drink on the set and you can hear the ice clinking around the tin. 
And then we settle in and have a conversation that's really wide ranging. We don't just talk about the latest book. We talk about their life and their funny experiences. One of the questions I most often ask at the end, I do this sort of lightning round of just quick questions. And I always ask, what is your least attended book event ever? And everyone, even the big stars, has some humbling experience. And as Amor says, it's better to have a zero than a one. If nobody <laughs> shows up, you just get to leave. Like, it's all over. It didn't happen. But if one person shows up, you've got to stay there. Well, this book is about the following. And so anyway, hilarious stories from sort of on the road, behind the scenes stories from book festivals, stories of grinding it out. How do you get the book going? Do people outline or do they just write it? Everyone's different on all these things. It's fascinating to learn. Great stuff. Doug, thanks so much for being on. Continued success. And we will have all the information in the show notes about the podcast and the book release. Thrilled to have you on. Ranger, thank you so much. Really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.